So, I'm glad to be back. I am glad to be back. We had three awesome sermons. Pastor Jim preached on the body of Christ. Uh, Nick preached on uh, the gospel perspective, kind of God and technology, which was a wonderful. I was greatly encouraged. The only sad thing I was about that is that uh, with all the sermons, I was driving while I was listening to them, so I couldn't take notes. Um, but excellent, and Keone last week. Thank you so much for uh, preaching the word on God and the family. And I tell you what, this is something I just want to say before I launch into my sermon. Praise God, and praise God that we have men, many faithful men uh, that he is raising up within our church that are able and capable of preaching the word faithfully. Man, that's what Paul told young Timothy, entrust the things that you have heard and seen in me, entrust these things to faithful men who will be able to do likewise, and that just brings joy to my soul, man. I hope you guys are encouraged as I was encouraged. That's a sign that your prayers and our prayers are being answered. God is hearing him. He is building up men to lead. Praise God. Uh, a few other more preliminary things. Halloween is coming up. Trunk or treat. Uh, not just Halloween. Any, any history buffs in here? No. Wow. No history buffs? All right. I got a few. All right. Uh, then you are with me likewise suffer every Halloween because we've taken a day that the world literally changed and we just eat candy on it. <laughs> right? Martin Luther... Uh, All Saints Day or Reformation Day nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the Catholic Church, unintentionally started the Reformation that changed the face of the globe, literally. Um, It changed everything that you see today. So, I encourage you, man, go find a movie about Martin Luther or something sometime this week and just watch it, read something about it. It really is important. That guy, Martin Luther King Jr., Uh, The black reformer, he was named after this dude, Martin Luther, all right? He was not the original one. There was one before him. Uh, Check it out next Sunday, the first of the Lord's Supper. So I I invite you, try and be here if you can. We'll be doing some baptisms, presenting some new members. Really, really exciting. Genesis chapter 35. If you're not there already, Genesis chapter 35. 35, we'll be picking up where we left off with Genesis chapter 34. There is a popular story, famous, many of you are familiar with it, of a disobedient son who is trapped and taken away and separated from his father. His father then embarks on a perilous journey. Fraught with danger at every corner, stopping at nothing to locate and rescue his long lost son, his only son. You know the story. If you guessed 2003 Pixar's Finding Nemo, then you are correct. I have a toddler in the house, so you watch what you watch, right? You would be correct. We love stories like this, right? You remember the story of Marlon takes off and search for his son and encounters Dory and they have to face sharks like Bruce and fish are friends, not food, right? You remember? And and then there's the whale and jellyfish and turtles and then the whole nine yards. And they go and he stops at nothing to find his son Nemo and bring him home. 
We love stories like this. Why do we love stories like this? We love stories like this because in many ways, in many ways, these stories are our story. This is the story of the Bible in many ways. We are disobedient children. Our Father takes steps and stops at nothing to deliver his people. And we see this over and over again in Genesis, from Genesis chapter 3 on till Jesus comes, on until Revelation. God rescuing his people, seeking his people, stopping at nothing to save and deliver his people. And that will be on beautiful display in today's passage. What's been going on, if you're just jumping in with us, and because it's been about a month since we've been in Genesis, what's been going on? We've seen Jacob, all right? Jacob is the main focus of our passage today. Actually, God is, but God's speaking to Jacob, and we've seen Jacob and literally watched him grow up before us, right? Remember I said with Isaac and Jacob, this is like the original reality TV, all right? Um, what was the movie with Jim Carrey in it not so long ago? He was a reality TV show. Truman Show, thank you, right? right? He, just, he grew up on stage, and so we've seen Jacob and Esau, uh, their birth. We've seen them growing up. We saw them become men and separate and fight, and Esau wants to kill Jacob. And then we saw Jacob kind of go off and meet God and meet his wife, Rachel, that he was like, dude, I can move this whole stone by myself, right? He moves the stone, impresses her. Worked seven years for her hand in marriage. And that phrase that came off, and it says, and there were but days to him because of the love with which he loved her. Right? Right? So we've seen the love story unfold. We followed him in his 20-year exile and then his return home and meeting with Esau, reconciling with Esau, going, God calls him, return to Bethel, the place I called you to at the first. But if you remember chapter 34, Jacob's obedience was a half-hearted obedience. Remember where he settled? Just short, just short of where God told him to in Shechem. And in that sermon, that was the last sermon I preached on, Genesis 34, probably the most horrendous chapter in all of Genesis. Remember, half-hearted obedience always comes at a cost. And sometimes, sometimes that cost is paid by our children. And we saw this with Jacob's only daughter, Dinah, as she was raped. And then her full-blood brothers from Leah, Simeon and Levi, do what any brothers would do and rise up and take vengeance because of their father's inaction. And they murder and plunder the entire town of Shechem. They kill every male. A very grotesque chapter. This year, these are the 12 tribes of Israel. Man, these are Simeon and the tribe of Levi. Levites would later be serving God in the temple before him. He would be their inheritance. And their forefather, the murderer. Man, the story's thick. And it ends with Jacob confronting his son, Simeon and Levi, saying, You've made me stink to the inhabitants of the land. You remember their reply? Shall they treat our sister like a prostitute? In other words, we don't care. That's what they get. 
That's where we ended off, right? Genesis 34, sex assault, God's redeeming mercy, and now we come into Genesis 35. And all of this is happening. Genesis 35 has a lot of stuff in it. Uh, Jacob's favoritism for Rachel's children, Joseph and then soon to be Benjamin, who's going to be born in this chapter, uh, his favoritism is starting to bear its ugly fruit in his family. Now, why does the writer record this? Why does God and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit record these things? He's setting the stage for the next final narrative that will cap off our study of Genesis, starting in chapter 37, the great Joseph narrative. Because now the seeds of bitterness, the seeds of jealousy, the seeds of anger, are the picture's already there. And what chapter 35 and 36 do for us is they will close out the Jacob narrative. This will be kind of the last chapter, so to speak, focusing on Jacob. From here on out, the writer is going to turn and we're going to see Joseph. We're going to see what God does through Joseph. That's why some of these things are recorded here. So let's pray, and we'll see what happens. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word. You have written it down, you have spoken it, and you have preserved it for our instruction. Lord, you've preserved it so that we might have hope. You've preserved it so that we might not desire evil as some of them did. You've preserved it that we might know you, and in knowing you have joy forevermore. So, God, I pray that your word would be coming in power, that you would bear it to, in lives and hearts this morning in ways that only you can. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. <clears throat> Point number one, God is present in our pain. God is present in our pain. That's in verses one through four. So chapter 35 opens out right on the heels of 34 with the family discord. Shall they treat our father like a, or our sister like a prostitute? The inhabitants of the land now that God has called Jacob to hate his family. They would like to kill him. This is a low point for Jacob. Can you imagine? Your children that you nursed from birth, that you bore, that you raised up, that you helped learn to walk, rise up and slaughter a whole town? It's a low point for Jacob, a low point for his family. And in the middle of this pain, the chapter opens with a kind word. You notice, what's it say? The very first words, three words of the chapter, what is it? God said to Jacob. God said to Jacob. It's three words in the Hebrew, right? God said to Jacob. We take that for granted, right? That God speaks in our pain. He's there and he's alone and he's, he's in this land. He left his father. He's followed him in obedience half-hearted obedience for the most part, and things are just hard, and yet God meets him in his pain. God said to Jacob, we take those little phrases for granted, don't we, that God, our God, speaks in our pain. He still does, brothers and sisters. He still does through his word. We take these phrases for granted. He speaks, and God tells Jacob 
Again, he reminds Jacob to complete his vow from chapter 28. If you remember the original break with Jacob and Esau, he steals the blessing and Esau wants to murder him because he's so angry and he shakes. So Jacob flees and he finds himself alone in Jacob's ladder, that famous passage where God initially encounters him. And you remember Jacob's uh, reply that only Jacob would have, right? If God brings all these things to pass, then I will make him my God and I will worship him and I'll give him a tenth of everything I have if he brings me home safely again. God reminds him of that vow. He reminds him, calls it to remembrance. Jacob, we're not done. We're not done. We have unfinished business. Arise. Go to Bethel and make an altar for me in the place that you were there in the beginning. And this is the way God does. He's so kind with us. He's patient with us. He is merciful. And see, there's times that come, and Jacob, no doubt here in Shechem, has been settled there, been comfortable, and now he's yielding or reaping the fruit that his disobedience has sown him, pain, heartache. And what this can show us is that while we may forget about God, beloved, God never forgets about us. He never forgets about us. And though our disobedience, though our pain, though our sin may bring temporal hardships, temporal consequences, they never, ever thwart or derail God's eternal purposes for us in Christ. He never forgets about us. And so God commands Jacob to go to Bethel. Jacob then has a response, right? What is Jacob's response? I like, I like how you just see God speaks, Jacob does. God speaks, Jacob speaks. And Jacob speaks to his family. And he tells his family and everybody else who's under his authority, likely some of the females from Shechem, uh, and he tells all of them to do what? Put away the foreign gods from among you. Purify yourself. Wash your garments. Change them. And then we will go to Bethel. Parents, here's some application, all right? Here's some application, parents. Our culture does not like authority. No doubt about it. We don't like any kind of authority. Many of us and you have grown up in a generation that does not like authority. And so we don't like it over us. And so we also don't know how to really use it either in a God-glorifying manner. But parents, specifically men, if you're here, you have God-given, God-ordained, God-honoring authority to use for the good of your family. It is a good thing. And when you exercise that authority to protect your family from spiritually harmful practices, Unfortunately, many times today, the men in households are like Adam in the garden, standing by, doing nothing, watching their families go after false gods. 
Men, you have authority. Wield it for the good and the glory of God and the good of your family. Command them under your authority to put off foreign gods, whatever those foreign gods are in your families. For some people, that little rectangular tube that's flat now, it used to be big and a lot heavier. For some people, that's an idol that you stand by as it devours your family and as they're enslaved to it. For some people, it's a very small rectangular object that is becoming an idol and you stand by idly and do nothing. Cat-like reflexes. For some, it's many other things, but men, as Jacob did here, you can in Christ lovingly, patiently, gently command, nonetheless, your families to put away foreign gods. And while we're on the topic, you have God-given authority to require your children to come to, you, to, come to church with you. You have God-given responsibility as your children are under your authority, of course, as if they become adults, it's different, but as long as they're in your household under your authority, you have a God-given authority and responsibility to bring them to worship the one true God with you. Amen. I challenge you to consider exercising it for their good, and this is why. Our culture is kind of this modern notion of, well, I don't want to force them to come to church with me because then they might grow up hating church and hating God. Well, first, let me just connect some dots for you scripturally. They're already born at enmity with God. Keeping them out of church won't help them get closer to Jesus. Second point, do we let them do this with anything else in life, with school? Right? Like, let's just, hey, I kind of wish my parents would have done this with me in school. Like, hey, let's like, um, let's just, if you feel like going to school, I don't want you to grow up hating school. I just, you can, you know, come on and just, no, what do we do? You're going to go to school, right? You need school. Why? Because you're going to grow up and you're going to be a moron if you don't go to school, all right? You're not going to know the things that you need to know to navigate life wisely and well, and yet we do this with temporal knowledge, but yet with knowledge of God, with who we will be for him in some way or another, spend eternity, we say, ah, just if you feel like it. And yet the Proverbs come and say, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. And yet we expect these children in and of their own place to choose wisely. When yet there's folly, foolishness is bound up in their very hearts. I would say if you don't make your children go to school, you aren't loving them well because you're not giving them what they need in the long run. Likewise, parents, you have a God-given authority. Love them well. Bring them to church with you. Set their hearts as much as you can on the living God who loves them. Not in a harsh way, all right? When I say demand and authority, we get drill sergeant in our mind. No, it's a patient, loving, Christ-like, nonetheless, authoritative voice. I love you because I love you. Let's go worship God. In excursus, Jacob commands his family, put away the foreign gods, and they do. And they go up and worship God. 
He then makes this wonderful statement in verse 3. Check this out. Why are we going to go to Bethel? That I may make there an altar to the God, check this out, who answers me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I have gone. Brothers and sisters, hear now. What's your trouble? Distress, that's that word, that word stress. Distress, trouble, tumult, pain. What is your trouble, brothers and sisters, this morning? We serve the God who answers in the day of trouble. Break down, let me just speak first person for God. What's your trouble? I hear you. I hear it. I see it. I hear you. I hear your trouble. I hear your pain. That's what God would say through this passage. I, I hear it, and I don't just hear it. I answer in the day of trouble. I answer through the pain, and not just do I hear it, but I am with you. He's been with you wherever you have gone. You feel alone in your pain and in your trouble. He's there. He's there. He hears and he answers. Some of you are in here and you've been away from God for a long time maybe. I don't know. Maybe it hasn't been that long, but you've just drifted. And sometimes when we drift, we have a tendency to kind of blame God. Like, I just feel cold towards God. I feel like I'm alone in this trouble. I feel like nobody's there. There's no support for me. That can be a very true feeling. But be careful that we don't blame God. If you don't sense God's nearness to you, I would just ask a few diagnostic questions. One, have you asked? He hears us in the day of trouble. Sometimes if we're not getting an answer, it's because we're not talking to him. We run to everywhere else, my family, my mom, my dad, my brothers, my sisters, my coworkers, but we don't often turn to God. And so, yeah, it can feel very lonely. Or if we do, it's kind of the popcorn prayer, God, help me now, which is good. He hears those prayers. He hears them. However, how much time are you meditating? Are you imbibing? Are you sitting at his word waiting to hear that answer back? It could be that you're asking. Maybe you're like, I do pray. I do. I do. Then maybe the issue is what James would say. You're calling on him with wrong motives while you're clinging to foreign gods. See, it's not that I don't want to hear God. It's that I don't really want to let go of these other false idols, these other foreign gods in my life. I would much rather just kind of hear you and keep them. And God's command would be put away the false gods. Put them away. And then you may be able to hear me actually speaking. This is an amazing statement that Jacob says, and he has no clue what is about to hit him. No clue. He says, God answers me in the day of trouble and has been with me wherever I have gone. And yet, as these verses unfold, he's going to be hit with tragedy after tragedy after tragedy. On top of whatever else has already happened. What, what happens in the verses to follow? Deborah dies. His longtime nurse from his mom, Rebecca, whom he's never seen again. Deborah dies. Rachel, the love of his life, whom he has loved all these years, 
dies. Think of the greatest love story you could think of, right? Titanic, I don't know, whatever it is. You remember that scene where, where the loved one dies, right? It's sad. It's heartbreaking. He lost his spouse right here after years and years and after following God in obedience. On the path of obedience, Rachel dies, giving birth to her final son, Benjamin who is himself an answer to prayer. Remember Joseph? Rachel was barren, and God grants her Joseph finally, and she says in naming Joseph, may the Lord add another son. She gets that son, and she dies. And then Jacob's father dies, Isaac. He dies at 180. And it all seems to play out in a very brief span of time from the narrative. Jacob had no clue any of that was about to happen when he said, God hears me in the day of distress. That truth he would need to cling on to more than ever, little did he know. And brothers and sisters, the same truths, the same promises of God, the way we function, we have to cling to them in the day of trouble. We have to call them to remembrance because you don't know and I don't know what lies before me next week. But here's what I do know and what will help me face those trials is that God is with me and he is there in the day of trouble. Amen. And that's same of, true, true of you and me and everybody. And in all of it, in all of this pain, in all of your pain, God is bringing about his promises to restore and redeem and justify men and women and families, including Jacob's family, but all families of every tribe and tongue and language and nation. And he is going to bring his promises to pass to restore the world. As the hymn says, when sorrows like sea billows roll. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say it is well with my soul. This is where Jacob's at. Number two, God is faithful in our fears. God is faithful in our fears. This is going to speed up. That was the longest point, so don't worry. It's going to speed up. God is faithful in our fears. Notice verse 5. What does he say? And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. We have Halloween coming up in our culture, man. Our culture just, we kind of focus on the things that frighten us, right? So uh, we like the scary things and zombie races and all this kind of stuff, right? Uh, spiders, dogs dressed up as spiders chasing people, right? It's really funny, and, and they kind of make light of it. We indulge in these things around uh, Halloween as Christians and good fun and as your conscience lends you uh, under Christ. But the world isn't the only one who uses fear for their purposes. As they journeyed, why, why is this important? Because you remember chapter 34 ends with what? You've made me stink, right? You remember that? Everybody hates us. We just killed like one of their tribes, one of their neighbors. What do you think they're going to want to do? They want to gather together and destroy us. So understand that when God asked Jacob 
to go back to Bethel and travel through these lands, it is a very big act of faith. Jacob is afraid with good reason. With good reason to be afraid. It is an act of faith. He is calling Jacob, trust me. Trust me and follow me and finish what you said. God was asking him to trust him before, before he blessed him. To follow him in faith. Some of you have fears in here. Actually, we, we all have fears, if we're honest, even if we don't recognize them. Some of you have fears in here, and your fears are legitimate. They're legitimate. They're not without bad cause. It's not like it's not a crazy type of, you know, I'm not going to step on this crack because I might break my mother's back, right? right? It's not that type of fear. We have legitimate fears about what would happen if we obeyed God in a certain area. We all have serious fears about what would happen if we obeyed God in a certain area of our lives. Let me give you a few examples. Job. Maybe my job is demanding too many hours right now. I can't be with my family. I can't be with God's people regularly. But I can't say no either because if I said no, then I would lose my job. And if I lose my job, then I can't support my family, right? And you see how this goes. Etc., etc. Maybe finances. Man, I know God says I should honor Him and I should, should give regularly, or maybe I know I should pay taxes, or maybe I know I shouldn't be in this much debt, but, but I just can't get by if I don't fill in the blank. Or maybe it's relationships. I want to be closer to God. I want to have that thriving relationship with Jesus, but what will my partner think? Or rather, what will God think of my partner? I don't want to give that up either. And on and on we could go. I want to go into the ministry, but I don't know if I can do blank. We all have fears, some of them legitimate, about what obedience to God would look like. And notice, as Jacob walked out in fear, what did God do to the surrounding people? He transferred it. A terror from God came upon all the cities, such that they did not pursue Jacob. It's not that they didn't want to pursue Jacob. It's that God used his divine power and prerogative. And once again, as we've seen many times in Genesis, restrained evil men. Brothers and sisters, test God. What is your fear? What is your fear? Yes, they should have attacked him, but yet God is able, God is able to work and restrain that which would threaten his purposes and his plan. This just demonstrates the Proverbs, brothers. Proverbs 16, 7, you guys know it. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Trust God with your fears, and he will deliver you. He is faithful to his promise. Number three, God is powerful in his promise. God is faithful in your fears, and God is powerful in your promise. This section is the passing of the baton. 
Jacob received a new name. No longer shall you be called Jacob, but Israel. He had already been renamed by God. Why, why is this coming up again? Because the person he spoke to was a mysterious figure wrestling with him overnight by himself. And then all he knows is I, I can't really walk. He walks with a limp. And that man blessed him, and he recognized him as God. But now he's hearing it from the voice of unmistakably God himself, El Shaddai, God Almighty. The same God that identified himself with Abraham way back in Genesis 17. This is a passing of the baton. The same promises, land, seed, people, and a new name. Abram's name was changed from Abram to... Abraham, Jacob's name is changed from Jacob to Israel, wrestles with God. God is mighty, brothers and sisters. Don't write God off as powerless. He is powerful to do what he promises. His divine power now flows to us, to you, through the gospel through the good news of Jesus Christ. That's where it now is mediated down through the ages through Jesus, such that Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. And Paul echoes this in Romans chapter 8, the greatest chapter in the Bible. If God is for us, who can be against us? you love that, brothers and sisters? Allow God to take these things that you're afraid. Bring them to his feet. And then the last point, God is delightful in his demands. You're like, whoa, whoa, what is this? God is powerful in his promise, El Shaddai, God Almighty. And God is delightful in his demands. This takes us back to verse 1. Read it with me. God said to Jacob, Arise. Go up to Bethel and dwell there. Go up to Bethel and dwell there. How in the world do I get this point that God is delightful in his demands? You guys all know what's about to happen if you've been with me in Genesis, right? Where's Jesus in Genesis 35? Well, for one, he's in the covenant that... He would bless Jacob, which is Abraham's blessing, which Genesis, sorry, Galatians chapter 3 picks up. And how do we as Gentiles, non-Jews in here, inherit the promises given to Abraham? Through the seed who would come, Jesus Christ, by faith in him. But I would also point you to another place in here, since we've drawn that out. Where is Jesus in this passage? I would say right here every time you see that word Bethel. See, this is going to be a theme that will develop throughout the Old Testament. Bethel, if you remember what it means, does anybody remember what it means? House of God. That would later develop, and somebody is going to build a tabernacle after they have the great exodus and the ten plagues and the, all that they're going to build a tabernacle, and that tabernacle is going to be where God's house, where his tent is. This is where the Lord's presence dwells, which will later be developed more with the kingdom. When somebody named David decides he wants to build God a house, a temple, David wouldn't be allowed to build it. His son Solomon would build it. 
the temple would forever, until the time of Jesus, be identified with the very presence and power of God, El Shaddai, among his people. Jesus, in talking to the Pharisees and his disciples, rebukes him for their ignorance of the law and of the scriptures. And he says, Moses wrote of me. So if you guys remember, where did Moses write of Jesus? And how does all this talk about the house of God refer to Jesus right here? And then how is God delightful in commanding Jacob to go to the house of God? You tracking with me? God commands Jacob to go to Bethel, the house of God, to dwell. Isn't that awesome? Let me just flush this out a little more. In Jacob's low point, in his hardship, God wants him to remember where his home is. With God forever and ever. Psalm 23, how does it end? Surely your goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What is God asking him to do? He's asking him in your hardship, come home. Be with me. This is a foretaste of what's going to come. You are safe. There is refuge. There is hope with me, and you will be with me. My goodness and mercy shall follow you. This is where you're going to be forever. Notice Psalm 27, 4 through 5. This is his singular purpose in life that I would ask the Spirit would bring hard on every one of you in here. One thing I have asked of the Lord, one thing. One thing, if you could ask the Lord one thing, one thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple, for he will hide me, get this, he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. Are you in trouble? God says, come home. Come home. This is nothing short of God demanding his people to be delighted in himself. He never stops giving this command from, to the end of the Bible. Check this out. So my trip, after two weeks of being gone, right, you guys know how this goes. You travel away for two weeks. You live out of a suitcase, and you have like that little tiny toothpaste tub of thing. It's like this big, and you're like... Right? And you, you, you do all this stuff, and you're living, you're literally kind of like a pilgrim, and you're in other people's beds and on their pillows. And, and then I came home at the end of those two weeks, man, and, and I was just like, my bed, right? My pillow, my dog, right? My floor, <laughs> right? Whatever it is, like, you're just like, I'm home. My church. I got to go to some really cool churches, but there's no place like home. My church. My brothers, my sisters, right? My chemo, Kinimaka back there, right? My, my, my Michaela, my, my, my country, right, right, right? Just, I miss it. I'm home. 
This is what God's asking. Come home. This is his command for you. Wherever you've been scattered, come home. How do we come home? How do we come to God's house today? How does that happen and how is Jesus here? Does it mean come to church? Come to the church of God every Sunday and your life will be better? No. That's not what it means. It actually might get worse, right? That's what happened for Jacob. Everybody died. Even his son Joseph died, or so we thought. How does that happen today? John chapter 2. It's the last passage. John chapter 2, 18 through 21. Write it down. Go there if you want. John chapter 2, 18 through 21. So the Jews said to Jesus, Right? So what happened here? Jesus goes into the temple. They're selling money. They're selling things. They're making profit. He makes a whip. Starts driving people out, flipping tables over. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. The Jews say to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? In other words, by what authority do you do these things? What sign do you show us? Jesus answered, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? John explains for us, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. He was speaking about the temple of his body. What does that mean, brothers and sisters? This Bethel, the house of God that would become the tabernacle, that would become the temple where God's presence is said to be, was all foreshadowing, all pointing the way, paving the road to Jesus, the temple of God, the temple of his body, that he would lay down his life on a cross for sinners. And he would raise it again in three days, conquering sin, conquering death, and now offers forgiveness to all people who believe so that I can tell you this morning, come home, come home to Jesus today and you will find rest for your troubled souls. Man, it's awesome. God is delightful in his demands when he asks you, dear friend, to come to Jesus. He's asking you to come to joy. You've been away from it for far too long. Some of you, your whole lives, you've been coming to church and you've been here, but you've been missing Jesus. Today, I ask you, go up to Bethel or come home to Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for just your grace to sinners in Christ that you beckon us to come and dwell with you forever. Your goodness and mercy comes to us in Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would create faith now. God, that as you initiated with Jacob and you spoke to him, that you would initiate with men and women and children in this room now that they would come to Christ and so come to joy. And Lord, may we all put away our foreign gods. May we put away these things that hinder us, that cling closely to us, and may we draw near to you. 
Lord, would you do this in your church now and Kahalui and across this island for your name and your glory, I pray. Amen.